Okay, in honor of the <coughs> Jubilee year of the uh, unification of Yerushalayim, and uh, I would add also in honor of the uh, fact that during this period of the year we are supposed to remember, commemorate uh, Yerushalayim as it was Bivinyana, um, devoting this shiur to the uh, election of Yerushalayim. Um, it's a question in the philosophy of various world religions, what gives a sacred place its sanctity? And uh, a uh, well-known approach uh, advocated by a, uh, an important uh, scholar of uh, world religions, Eliada, is that both sacred time and sacred space represent a return to the origins, return to the origins of the universe. So sacred time returns us, as it were, to the time that the universe was created, and sacred space is the space where, according to uh, whichever religion we're talking about, that's the place where the world originated, where, where a being first came to be. Um, if we um, if we take a look at uh, at our sources, we'll see in the source sheets you have in front of you, uh, source number two, uh, describing the service of the Kohen uh, on Yom Kippur, the Kohen Gadol on Yom Kippur. A stone was there from the days of the early prophets called Shtia, the Evanash Shtia raised above the ground three finger widths, and originally the ark was placed upon it. After the ark was taken, upon it they would offer the incense offering within the Holy of Holies. So the Mishnah, which is recording the practice of Bait Sheni, of the second temple, uh, is telling us that uh, even though the uh, ark is no longer sitting in its original place, the ark is not... Uh, its whereabouts are unknown. Nevertheless, uh, the Kohen Gadol would treat the Eben Shtia as uh, would treat the Eben Shtia as um, uh, as a place where you could perform the, the ritual of uh, of bringing the bringing the Ktoret and so on. Um, the, this here, the Eben Shtia is described simply as a place where we had a tradition that the Ark stood. But there is another tradition recorded in the Tosefta that tells us that the Eben Shtia is Mimena Hushteta HaOlam. Okay, the world was founded on the Eben Shtia. And there are Midrashim that describe how in the middle of the primal ocean this uh, large stone appeared. Okay, and that was the beginning of the creation of the world. Uh, similarly, in source number three, uh, uh, when it says that uh, Adam was created from the earth, Rabbi Brachia and Rabbi Chelbo, in the name of Samuel the Elder, said he was created from the place of his atonement. As you read, an altar of earth thou shalt make unto me. The Holy One, blessed be he, said, Behold, I will create him from the place of his atonement, and may he endure. Okay, so Adam Arishon was created from the dirt that later became the place of the altar. Okay, and the significance of that is that since uh, God knows that man eventually is going to sin, uh, according to the Midrash, he eventually happened within about one hour after being commanded. Um, so, 
that eventuality was foreseen, and as a result, uh, man was created from the place that would provide atonement for, for when he sins. So here again, we see that the altar is not placed uh, indiscriminately in wherever it happens to, uh, to work out architecturally. The altar is the exact spot from which the original man, Adam Rishon, uh, was created. So here we have rabbinic echoes of this uh, idea suggested by Eliada, which, uh, as I've noted, is, occurs in many uh, of the world's religions. But uh, this is not the only approach that's adopted in, uh, in Jewish sources. Uh, and if we go back to the Mishnah, the, the Mishnah about the Kohen Gadol, the Mishnah doesn't describe to the Evan any particular importance other than the fact that the Ark stood upon it. And so the Mishnah would seem to be saying that the importance of a temple site is derived from history rather than from creation. It's not something inherent in the very creation of the world. It's not cosmic or metaphysical significance, but it draws its significance from uh, from the fact that historically man, man and or God invested it with sanctity at one time, uh, at one time or another. So Jewish tradition knows of two different approaches. Uh, what I want to investigate with you today is the biblical approach to this issue. And in order to ascertain the biblical approach, we're going to focus on four narratives. Okay, I know I wrote dual elections, so that sounds like two, but it's actually two times two. Okay, because uh, the dual election refers both to the times of Abraham and the times of King David, and also to two different narratives from the cycle of Abraham's stories and two different narratives from the cycle of stories regarding David HaMelech. So it's actually a fourfold uh, election uh, of Jerusalem that, that we're going to investigate. As a kind of introduction to this, uh, please take a look at source number one, uh, an early midrash, a Tanedic midrash on the book of Dvarim talking about the Psukim and the Torah that talk about, um, that talk about uh, the mitzvah of building a temple. Rather, seek out, Tidrosh, the place which Hashem your God will choose from all your tribes to make His name dwell. There you shall come, that is, seek out, again, Drosh, with the guidance of a prophet. Is it possible to say, delay seeking until a prophet tells you where to seek? The teaching prescribes a sequence to the search. Seek out to make his name dwell. There shall you come. First seek it out and find it. Afterward, a prophet will confirm it for you. Okay, so the, the, the Midrash uh, presents a somewhat paradoxical situation. Who actually selects the place on which the temple will be, uh, will be erected? God. Okay, God makes his will known through a prophet. He's the one who selects the place and of course, this is the refrain of uh, Dvarim chapter 12, okay, from where the uh, Pasuk we cited, uh, the, the Midrash cites, is taken. Okay, the place which God selects, that is the place of the temple. However, uh, the Pasuk that the Midrash relates to also says, the seek it out. And the Midrash understands this to mean. Don't wait for a prophet to tell you where to do it. First, seek it out. So first you seek it out, and then the prophet tells you 
uh, tells you where to put it. Now, the, of course, this is a rather paradoxical situation. If God is selecting the place, why do we need human searching? And if you know, human beings are selecting the place, then why do we need the divine selection? Okay, that, that's a that's the paradox that the midrash is presenting uh, is presenting to us, and uh, it goes on to tell us how this is actually carried out at the time of uh, at the time of King David. But since we'll follow that along uh, in the Tanakh itself, so we'll we'll skip this part of the uh, we'll skip this part of the midrash. But I'll just uh, conclude this uh, these opening remarks by noting that when we seek out the place, okay. So the question is. Uh, what are our criteria? How do we go about seeking out the place? Do we seek out the place based on our own human considerations? Do we seek out the place based on our attempt to uh, ascertain what is the place that way back when, from the perhaps from the time of creation or from the times of the patriarchs, was uh, originally selected as the important place? that really confronts us with the issue with which we opened. What, what, what is it, after all, that grants the temple its sanctity? So, after these uh, introductory remarks, let's look at the four narratives uh, uh, that we're going to discuss. Um, first, uh, first, let's note that uh, in the book of Breshit, in fact, in the Torah as a whole, okay, I'm talking about Torah, the five books of the Torah, Yerushalayim is never mentioned. Okay, but there are two places which have been at least traditionally understood as referring to uh, Yerushalayim. Uh, one of them is in Breshit chapter 14, okay, and that's where uh, uh, we have a battle of four kings against five kings. The four kings are the uh, mighty emperors of, uh, of the east, okay, the general area of uh, Babylonia, okay, uh, Iraq, Iran, Iraq. Uh, so we have four kings who have conquered uh, many territories, including territories in and adjoining Eretz Canaan, Eretz Israel. Uh, and after these uh, um, cities okay, in, in, uh, in Eretz Israel have been paying tribute for a certain number of years, they decide to rebel. Okay, rebel means stop paying their tribute, stop paying their taxes. Uh, kings don't like that. So they set out on a uh, punitive war in order to bring them back into the fold and uh, receive the uh, uh, economic support that they're expecting from their subjects. Okay, so they set out on this war. They're, of course, victorious. And uh, one of the cities they conquer is Sodom. Okay, where recently uh, Lot, Avram's nephew, has settled. And uh, when Avram hears about this, he sets out on a military expedition uh, where he takes on these four mighty kings okay, in a knightly uh, maneuver and emerges victorious. And then you know, he has restored both the property and the people of Sodom as well as the, uh, as well as the other uh, uh, as well as the other towns. That's the backdrop for the story in which Avram meets the king of Shalem. And Shalem has been traditionally identified as Yerushalayim. Okay? Of course, uh, we can readily imagine that that uh, identification has been challenged, especially since later on, 
uh, in narratives describing uh, Jacob's return from uh, from uh, Aram Naraim, okay, where he uh, comes to a city named Shalem, which we know to be in the area of Shechem. Okay, so it's possible that Shalem refers to that. Um, and uh, we're not going to make an exact geographic determination here. Um, Jewish tradition has identified Shalem as uh, as Yerushalayim. We'll see it in a, a little later on in the Midrash. But it's even earlier than that that we can find it. Um, if we if we look, in, uh, the, the king of Shalem is called Malkitzedek. And the name Malkitzedek appears later on in Tehilim chapter 110. Okay, Malkitzedek there clearly refers to a Jewish king. A Jewish king residing in Judea, residing in Yerushalayim. Okay, so Malkitzedek is a name taken on later on by the kings of uh, the kings of Israel residing in Yerushalayim, and we also know from the beginning of the book of Shoftim that the king of Yerushalayim is identified as Adoni Tzedek. Okay, so the kings of Yerushalayim all have Tzedek in their name, and as we'll see, that's not by accident. Okay, the, the Yerushalayim is identified. With Tzedek, we'll come back to this, but just think about the very disturbing uh, Haftarah we're going to read this Shabbat, Parshat, uh, Shabbat Chazon, okay, where uh, Yerushalayim in the future will be called Ir HaTzedek. Okay, so Malki Tzedek is the king of the Ir HaTzedek, Adoni Tzedek is the king of the Ir HaTzedek. Clearly, uh, going back to the book of Tehilim, Shalem, in Breshit Yudal, it has been identified uh, has been identified with Yerushalayim. Um, now, um, let, let's uh, look a little more closely at the backdrop to the story. Why, why is this story told? A part of it, of course, is to tell us about Avram's values, his devotion, particularly to family. Lot has just separated from him in the previous story in Breshit chapter 13. Uh, separated from him in a um, rather disturbing fashion and nevertheless Avraham despite having been kicked into the teeth uh, by Lot uh, decides he's not going to leave Lot in captivity of these uh, of these Mesopotamian kings and he sets out and uh, you know, this is quite a remarkable military uh, achievement and uh, certainly there was a risk factor involved nowhere does it say that uh, he received any divine promises or even requested any divine promises is a purely human initiative. We see that his devotion to his family is such that he he cannot uh, allow Lot to be taken into captivity and as a result he ends up saving the entire communities of Sodom, Amorah and and other neighboring communities. Uh, So that's, that's part of the point of the story. But as already noted by Kasuto and uh, later on echoed by Rav Yoel bin Nun, uh, there's a, an interesting geographical pattern that we can find in uh, here in chapter 14. Um, okay, if we look at Sukim 5 and 6, um, We'll see the um, 
We'll see the itinerary of the four Mesopotamian kings. Okay, now look at these peoples. Rifaim, Zuzim, Emim, Chori. These are nations that we don't hear much about in the Torah. But there is one, one other place in the Torah where we hear about all these four nations. Anyone who does Shnai Mikra Vechad Targum? That's right, it's in this week's parsha. Okay, in Parashat, uh, Parashat Dvarim, uh, chapter 2, Psukim 10 through 12, all of these nations are mentioned, and what's mentioned is that they were all replaced by the more familiar nations that neighbor Israel, Ammon, Moab, Edom, okay? These were nations that replaced these earlier nations who are mentioned here. And what, what both Kasuto and Raviol Binun understood, I think correctly, is that what the Torah is alluding to is that before Israel conquered the land of Israel, okay, and this is what's being foreshadowed in Dvarim chapter 2, they're about to enter the land and they're told, don't conquer all these countries, they're your relatives, God promised them their land, but proceed and conquer the other side of the Jordan, okay, that's what you are supposed to conquer. Um, uh, the what what actually prefigures that event is Avram Avinu in Rishi chapter 14. Because Avram Avinu has in effect conquered the land of Canaan. Okay, now that doesn't make him in practice the king of the land of Canaan, but it does make him, it has been suggested, it makes him at least symbolically the king of Canaan. In other words, he has symbolically at least taken possession of the entire land of Canaan from the Mesopotamian kings who had conquered it from their, uh, from, from the inhabitants. And so Avram Avinu has, in fact, in a way, taken possession of the land of Canaan. Okay, so that, that's the backdrop now for the following narrative. Okay, now, the, the meeting with the king of Shalem, with Malkitzedek, uh, is actually framed by another story. Okay, if we take a look at, uh, See, it's The king of Sodom goes out to greet Avram when he is returning from this military expedition. And we're expecting now something to happen between the king of Sodom and Avram. But instead of that, the Torah interjects another story. Malkitzedek, the king of Shalem, brings out bread and wine, in other words, to honor Avram and presumably his troops. Okay, and he is a priest to the Most High God. And he blessed him, saying, Blessed is Avram to the Most High God, who is the creator of heaven and earth. Creator and Kone also has the connotation of owner, the owner of heaven and earth. 
And blessed be El Elyon himself, who has delivered your enemies into your hands. Okay, so he is actually giving a theological interpretation to what Avram did. Okay, nowhere did we see that God had any part or any role in Avram's stunning victory. Okay, and here, okay, it is Valkitzedek who is basically saying to Avram, you know to whom you owe this victory. You owe it to El Elyon. He's the one who delivered. Okay, so you are blessed. Okay, obviously because you are the chosen elect of El Elyon. And El Elyon is to be praised for having, uh, for having guided you and, and delivered you and, and granted, and granting you victory. Vayitan lo maaser mikol is ambiguous. Who gave whom maaser? Possibly it's purposely ambiguous as suggested by Professor Yoni Grossman. Um, but be that as it may, I think the prime meaning of Vayitan lo maaser mikol is that Avram gives maaser to the Kohen. The Kohen is Malkitzedek. And Avram recognizes okay, uh, uh, Malkitzedek. Okay, so you have a kind of mutual recognition here. Now, in a way, Malkitzedek seems to be also joining in and recognizing Avram's sovereignty over the land, including his own land, okay, uh, Shalem. We'll come back to that in a bit. Okay, and Avram, at the same time, recognizes Malkitzedek as a servant of God, as a priest of God, and gives, and each one gives expression to this recognition by giving a gift, okay, bread and wine on the one side, and giving a, a tithe, a tenth, on the other side. And then the Torah returns to the Sodom narrative, Vayomer Melech Sodom el Avram, okay, remember me, okay, here I am, okay, king of Sodom, he pushes himself onto center stage, and he says, Tenli anefesh v'achush kachlach, he says, I'm sure you're very interested in the booty. I'm not going to dispute that with you. It's yours. You got it fair and square. But give me back the people. You, you don't need all these, uh, all these people. I'll be happy to rule over them again. Okay? And you can keep all of the property, all of the booty. Language of an oath. I'm not going to take a thing from you, not even a shoelace. Okay, and, uh, and why? I don't want you saying, I am the one who made Avram wealthy, okay, which could be interpreted in one of two ways, and I would say it should be interpreted in two of two ways. Uh, number one, that uh, Avram is saying, well, it's not really mine. Okay, it really belongs to El Elyon. Okay, so I, I'm not going to take it. You want it back? Fine, t- take it. I, I, I don't consider myself to be the victor here. Okay, and how do I see that Avram uh, said that? Because he says, Hashem El Elyon Okay, he echoes what Malkitzedek uh, said in blessing him. Right? The other reason is because Sodom has already been identified in the previous chapter as a very wicked city. Of course, this will play out later on when God destroys them and ironically it's Avram who uh, pleads for them to be saved. But here where he has to have traffic with the king of Sodom, he says, I don't want to have, it, have any dealings with the likes of you. Okay? Because that way you'll be able to say that Avram's money is tainted. Okay? I don't want any tainted property. I don't want any tainted money. And I've suggested I think both of them 
are really indicated here. Now, again, the, this narrative of the king of Snom is interrupted by the narrative of Malkitzedek Melech Shalem. And why is that? Well, the technical answer is that what Avram says to the king of Snom is actually an echo of what he heard from Malkitzedek. In other words, had he not spoken to Malkitzedek before the king of Sodom, he might have had a different response to the king of Sodom. He's inspired by Malkitzedek to respond to the king of Sodom the way he does, and he echoes, El Elyon Koneshamayim Ba'aretz. He, he learned that from Malkitzedek, and he employs that in responding to the, uh, uh, to the king of Sodom. On a deeper level, what might be involved is something that the Nevi'im will play on uh, later on. Okay? Nevi'im starting with Moshe, actually, in Parshat Azinu, But again, in this week's Haftarah, okay, the contrast between Yerushalayim, the Ir HaTzedek, and the city that represents the exact opposite of the Tzedek of Yerushalayim, namely Sodom. So when Yeshayahu wants to say to the, to the people in this week's Haftarah, okay, that, uh, Yerushalayim is going to be destroyed because of, because of your violation of Tzedek, he says, because you have been like Sodom. Kisdom hayinu daminu. Okay, Sodom is the epitome of, what, of, of, of the, uh, of whatever is opposite to Yerushalayim. It's the exact antithesis of Yerushalayim, and here we see that antithesis uh, acted out already by Avram. Okay, when Avram okay, responds to Sodom and responds to uh, Melech Shalem, he responds to them in opposite ways to indicate this is my man. Okay, I identify with his values, his religious values, and also his human values. The human values of caring. Soldiers coming back from a war, he comes out to greet them with lechem vayayin. What characterizes Sodom? The utter denial of any hospitality. That's what we'll learn later on in chapter 19. Right? So, okay, the tza'aka, okay, the oppression. Okay, so, so Avram says, he represents oppression, I want nothing to do with him. He represents service of God and human values. He's the person with, with whom I want to identify. So these two stories are very closely bound up with one another. So Yerushalayim, on one level, completes Avram's sovereignty over the entire land. Okay, he has conquered most of it in battle, and Yerushalayim represents a peaceful conquest. Okay, here, in order to take possession of the land, he doesn't need to fight. Why? Because there's a just king, there's a righteous king. There's a king who is servant of El Elyon, and so here, this king will merely acknowledge him as, as sovereign. And at the same time, Avram Avinu also expresses the values in which he believes and to which he's dedicated, the values of Tzedakah Mishpat, Tzedek, okay, which Malki Tzedek represents and which, and to which Zdom is the exact, uh, is the exact antithesis. So Yerushalayim is presented here in this story as a place that is selected, A, for the historical reason that it completes the conquest of the land, and B, because of the values that it represents, and we should add C, because Avram Avinu makes the decision to accept it. It's Avram Avinu who, by having this commerce with the king of Shalem, okay, by having this colloquy with him, 
It's Avram Avinu who grants Yerushalayim a special standing and a special status. Let's move to the second narrative. Second narrative also doesn't say Yerushalayim. Okay? It's called there, rather, Eretz HaMoriah. Okay? The land of Moriah. Okay? We'll talk about the name Moriah a bit further on. But, but before, but before getting to that point, let's, uh, first of all, again, discuss geography. Is Eretz HaMoriah the same as, uh, Harabait? Okay? We like to say yes. Okay, but is that in fact the case? Well, scholars have debated that. They, they've raised some questions. Uh, for example, one, one, you know, uh, scholars have this habit of uh, uncovering uh, uncomfortable facts. For example, Avraham Amin was said to have traveled three days from Beersheba in order to get to Eretz Amoriah, and Eretz Amoriah is a bit too close to require a three-day journey. Okay, what's perhaps more telling, maybe they just walked slowly, but, uh, but uh, what seems more telling is that Avraham Avinu takes wood with him, and wood is rather plentiful in Hare Yerushalayim. So, absolutely no need to take the wood with you, just chop it down when you get there. On the other hand, if Eretz HaMoriah would be, let's say, from Beersheba, if instead of going north, you go south and you travel for three days, you come to the Sinai Desert. You come to the Sinai Desert, you might come to another important mountain called Har Sinai. There's actually a Midrash that identifies Har Moriah with Har Sinai. It's not just contemporary scholars who came up with this idea. There's actually a Midrash that suggests at least that can be read as suggesting it. Rashi read it that way. Um, and so some scholars think that and there it would make sense for Avram to take the wood with him. He's not going to find any uh, very much wood, uh, maybe a little bit, but not very much wood in Harsinai. So that, that would actually make better geographic sense. Uh, nevertheless, once again, we're going to follow Jewish tradition, not necessarily because I'm uh, saying that historical geographically was correct, but because we're Jews and we follow Jewish tradition. So in Devrei Ayomim, chapter 3, when Shlomo HaMelech builds uh, uh, builds the temple, he identifies it as Har HaMoriah. He calls it Har HaMoriah. Okay, so it's clear that uh, the Reyayamim thinks that Eretz HaMoriah, presumably Eretz HaMoriah and Har HaMoriah are the same place. That's, of course, something you can nitpick about. But I think it's clear that at least the author of Reyayamim wants us to understand that the place on which the temple was built is, in fact, the place uh, on which the Akedah took place. And, of course, the Pasuk at the end of the Akedah will, su- will support this as well. We'll, we'll see that Pasuk uh, as, we, as we progress. Okay, so uh, we're, for our purposes, we're going to treat this as, uh, as a fact that the Akedah took place okay, on uh, the site of what ultimately becomes the Temple Mount. Okay, so um, a few points about the Akedah. Obviously, we, we can't uh, do a thorough a study of this entire narrative. Okay, but just uh, a, few, a few salient points. First of all, uh, uh, I think the first thing to note is that it's a very unsettling narrative. And the very idea of human sacrifice, which the Torah uh, generally terms an abomination, okay, gehinom. 
Okay, Gay Ben Hinom. Okay, we call it Gehenom, right? Hell, the the Jewish version of hell. And what it originally was was a place where uh, child sacrifice took place, and that's considered to be the place of the worst abominations. Okay, there, there are few, if any, abominations worse in Jewish tradition than child sacrifice, and yet God is demanding of Abraham a, uh, a child sacrifice. Okay, now it's arguable that the Torah sort of cushions the blow at the beginning by saying, Elohim nisa et Abraham. Okay, God put Abraham to the test. He put him on trial. Okay, now uh, some have understood that to mean that the Torah is signaling us that Yitzchak won't ultimately be killed. I don't think that that's warranted. But what I think is warranted is the Torah is explaining to us why it is that in this one and only place, God demands child sacrifice. He's not really interested in child sacrifice. He's interested in putting Avram to the test. Now, we as readers don't yet know whether it will or won't happen. We have every reason to believe it will in the end happen if Avram passes the trial and and carries out the divine command. But nevertheless, we understand that this is not in order to give God a kind of sacrifice that he normally wants, but rather in order to put Avraham to the ultimate, most extreme test. Okay, um, I think that's a good reading of why the Torah starts off right, right, for, right off the bat by telling us, Avraham. But I hardly find that to be, um, a, you know, it's still unsettling. Okay, it maybe you know, takes a bit of the edge off of the question, but the question remains a question. Why do you put somebody to the test by demanding something that you hate, that you abominate? Okay? That's still disturbing. And I think it's meant to be disturbing. The Torah wants us to be disturbed. Same way it wants Avram to be disturbed. That's not the only disturbing element of it. Uh, Another disturbing element of it is it's not just violating God's usual uh, practice or God's usual desires in terms of sacrifice, it's also violating God's covenant with Abraham. God's covenant with Abraham, just in the previous chapter when uh, Avram was commanded to do something else very painful to him and send away Yishmael, he's promised, Ki ki Okay, your seed will be through Yitzchak. From the very outset, Avram has been promised Avram has been promised that you will be a great nation. Your seed will be great. They will possess the land. And in the very last chapter, immediately preceding this, he was told, Yitzchak, he is the one who is going to carry on your line. Now, what's going to happen to that promise after Avram sacrifices him? This is, of course, the big question. Midrashim pick up on it. Um, uh, Kierkegaard, in uh, his fear and trembling, picks up on it, as well as on another disturbing element, Kierkegaard uh, considers the, the highest, uh, the most disturbing aspect and the highest test of Avram to be what he calls the teleological suspension of the ethical. Okay, The most profound ethical maxims of the Torah are being suspended here, are being violated here. This is a very disturbing story. And I think the Torah indicates to us just how disturbing it is by the very opening pasuk, which says, 
which things we can't go into. The Elohim Nisat Avraham. We're going all the way back to the opening of the cycle of Avram narratives. God is always called Hashem, the Tetragrammaton. Vayomer Hashem el Avram Lech Lecha. Goes right back to there. Okay? And constantly, God has always addressed Avram yeah, with the name Hashem. One place he uses El Shaddai. And El Shaddai Italech Lefanai Vayetamim. But Elohim? Okay? I think the Torah is signaling us the minute God knocked on the door, Avram Avinu felt there's something off here. That's not the divine knock that I'm used to hearing. Okay? This is a different voice. It sounds like a different God. Okay? How can the God I know be commanding this? I, I think the Torah is signaling this very clearly. And in fact, the name Elohim runs through the first half of the Akedah narrative. Okay, it's only in the second half of the Akedah narrative where there's a shift, a switch, and the name Hashem, our more familiar name, recurs, and we'll see how and why it, it recurs uh, uh, a bit later on. Okay, so all these things, I, I think, are very disturbing, and I think the Torah means for it to be disturbing. Disturbing both to give us a sense of just how difficult a trial this is for Abraham, but I think it's disturbing for another reason as well. It's disturbing be, because of something that it tells us about God and, what concerns us more, about the place that God is about to select. Okay, so now, uh, just before we... Um, okay, uh, yeah, oh, yes, one other disturbing feature I forgot to mention, which I think bears mentioning. There's a, a curious lacuna in the Pasuk at the end of the narrative, if you look at uh, Pasuk Yudet, is chapter 22, Pasuk Yudet, Vayashav Avraham el Ne'arav, Vayakumu Vayelchu Yachdav el Be'er Shava. Isn't there somebody missing here? Yitzchak, where is Yitzchak? Avram, when he left the Narim, he said, Vinishtachave, we will prostrate ourselves to God, Vinashuva Alechem, and we will return to you. He made it very clear. We are about to return. What happened to Yitzchak? So there are, of course, Midrashim and even some uh, commentators. The, the Ibn Ezra doesn't like them very much. But uh, there, are, there were those who suggested that Yitzchak, in fact, didn't return. But I think the answer is Yitzchak returned in body, but on a deeper level, he really didn't return. Which is another way of saying that... Um, it's not just, it was a trial and okay, God in the end called it off and now everybody went back and lived happily ever after. Maybe Avram lived happily ever after. Yitzchak didn't. Yitzchak saw his father wielding a knife about to slaughter him. Okay, and uh, I think that had an impact. There are many Midrashim that, that flesh this out as well. Okay, so that's also disturbing. Okay, you, you, you don't do something like this you know, just for the fun of it, or just in order to make a point. You do something like this, there are consequences. And the consequences are, first of all, the impact on the soul and and uh, and psyche of of, uh, of Yitzchak. And I think the Torah has indicated that. Now, um, uh, again, we can't go through in detail what you know what what exactly transpired and what, where, and why, but. Uh, 
just a couple of points in comparing this to the previous narrative. Previous narrative, remember, it started off with human initiative. And this narrative is all about the stifling of human initiative. Aaron Avinu doesn't issue a peep. Doesn't issue a word of protest, a word of complaint. Aaron Avinu knows how to raise his voice in protest. We saw it back in chapter 18 when he pleaded for all things for Sodom. For his own son, not a word. In the face of the divine command, the watchword is obedience. There is no room for human initiative. There's no room for human judgment. There's no room for human values. Human values here are God is riding over them roughshod. Okay, there, okay, the exact opposite in a way of the previous story is what we find in this story. And now let's focus on what concerns us mostly in this story, and that is the place. Okay, so let's look at the psukim that describe it. First of all, Avram is told to go to the place that I shall tell you. Okay, go to, okay. And Avram Avinu sees the place. Okay, he sees the place from afar. And that's when he says, okay, um, he says to the Narim, you stay here, we're going further. The Midrash wonders, how did he recognize it? How did he know? doesn't say God told him. Okay, so the Midrash, if you, uh, okay, we, we won't read this, but I'll just refer you to it. If you look at the first part of Source 5, okay, you'll see the Midrash telling us that Avram Avinu saw a cloud hovering over the mountain. Okay, and when he saw the cloud, he said to Yitzchak, do you see what I see? Yitzchak said, yes, I see a cloud hovering over the mountain. Then Avram Avinu said to the two young men who were accompanying them, what do you see? They say, we see a mountain. They didn't see a cloud. He says, ah, you stay here, we're going there. Okay, in other words, to ascend the mountain, you have to have special vision. You have to see something special. Okay, and this is a theme that we're going to see developed in the Torah itself a bit further on. Okay, he saw the place from afar means there was some quality of perception that he had that enabled him to identify this is the place. This is the place that God wants. Okay, and that's when he and Yitzchak who are the only two who saw the cloud, according to the Midrash, continue, continue on their way. Okay, so then, they come again to the place that God had told him, and that's where the Akedah takes place. And then, after, uh, um, after God has told him, uh, the angel, rather, has told him, okay, hold off, okay, don't actually sacrifice him, you pass the test, and so on. Afterwards, okay, so we find uh, we find the following pasuk, pasuk Yudalid, Vaikra Avraham Shem Hamakom Hahu Adunai Yire Asher Yamer Hayom Bahar Adunai Yirae. Avram called the place Hashem Yire. Literally, we'll see, but as we'll see in a minute, it actually has a different connotation in this context. As it is said today, in this place, in the mountain of God, will be seen. Now that seems to be a very clear reference to Shalosh Pamim Bashana, Yeira Echol Zuchurcha, Pene Hashem Elokecha, 
Three times a year, the three pilgrimage festivals, okay, all of the males shall be seen by God on this place that he has selected, namely on the Har Habayit, on the place where the temple, where God, which God has selected for the temple to be constructed. So here we have a clear allusion in the Akedah story to this being the ultimate site of the temple. Okay, but also, this term Hashem Yir'eh, I suggest it has a different connotation here. Why? Because if you go back to what is, I think, the most poignant moment in the entire story of the Akedah, when Yitzchak says to, says to Abraham, I see the fire, I see the wood, Interestingly, he skips over one other item that Avram took with him, the knife. Maybe that's too clo- too painful to even mention, right? And where is the sacrificial lamb? And what's Avram's answer to him? Okay, Avram's answer to him, if we uh, go back to Pasuk Hey. God will choose for him. Yir Elo. Yir Elo here doesn't mean we'll see, but will choose. Will choose for himself the sacrificial lamb. Okay, which is an ambiguous answer and clearly a purposely ambiguous answer. Okay, what it means on one level is God has already selected the lamb, don't worry, and you are he. I doesn't want to spell it out in painful detail, okay? But what he's also intimating is ultimately God will choose who the sacrificial lamb is. And interestingly, God does. After God has said, no, not Yitzchak, then he provides a ram. And the ram substitutes for Yitzchak, okay? Which, of course, a, a profound idea in its own right that every animal sacrifice is a stand-in for human sacrifice, Okay? The whole idea of animal sacrifice is God ultimately could and maybe even should demand human sacrifice because the whole idea of sacrifice is to annihilate human personality, to not, to, for human beings to utterly surrender to God. However, because God is also a just and a moral God who loves man, therefore he, he has commuted for all time all human sacrifice with animal sacrifice. Okay, so God has selected the sacrifice. He, as it were, selected Yitzchak and then selected something else as a substitute for Yitzchak. But the word is Elohim Yireh. And Avram says, the name of this place is Hashem Yireh. Yireh doesn't only mean we'll see, but also means we'll choose. This is the place that God chooses. Okay, and again, this is the exact opposite of the story in Breshit chapter 14. Chapter 14 is the place that man chooses, the place that represents service of God, absolutely, but it represents a service of God that man chooses. Man chooses how, where to, to serve God, which values will be incorporated into the service of God, that's chapter 14. Chapter 22 is that God has selected the place. Let's think back to the Midrash with which we opened today's shiur. 
Okay? We are supposed to seek out the place of the temple and choose it through a prophet. Yeah, well, that's exactly what happens with Avram. Avram first seeks out the place when he encounters Malkitzedek Melch Shalem. He seeks it out. He bestows upon it a special quality, a special character. And then, later on, God, in selecting it, but here we have a point we didn't see in the Midrash, in selecting it, God, in a way, obliterates everything that Avram has done back in chapter 14. He annihilates human initiative. He annihilates human values. Okay, There seem to be two completely opposite ideas involved in this one place, Yerushalayim. If we go back to the Midrash in Source 5, we'll look at the second part. Abraham called it Yir'eh, and Abraham called the name of that place Hashem Yir'eh. Shem called it Shalem, and Melchizedek, king of Shalem, said the Holy One, blessed be he. If I call it Yir'eh, as did Avraham, then Shem, a righteous man, will resent it. Well, if I call it Shalem, as did Shem, Avraham, the righteous man, will resent it. Hence, I will call it Jiru, from Yir'eh, Shalem, including both names, Yir'eh and Shalem. Okay, and of course, uh, historically, this is fanciful. It comes from the Ugaritic Uru Salim. Okay, Uru means city and Salim. So the original name apparently was Salim, which, by the way, does support the idea that Shalem is Yerushalayim, and Uru, Urushalim, the, the city of Yerushalayim. But the Midrashic reading, I think, is right on target in terms of understanding the relationship between the two narratives of Breshit 14 and Breshit 22. Yerushalayim incorporates both elements, both human autonomy, sovereignty, values. On the one hand, human beings have to seek out the place, and ultimately... The second part is God chooses the place. But what we learn in chapter 22 is when God chooses it, he doesn't just say, oh, I ratify your choice. He says, I choose it. You have to follow my choice. You have to subordinate your will to mine. Okay? And somehow or other, I think paradoxically, the Torah indicates that these two ideas come together. These two ideas which seem completely opposite and nevertheless, the Torah seems to indicate God selects a place. He doesn't ask any human being. He doesn't ratify any of the human values. But guess what? It turns out he selects the same place. The man is earlier selected for his own reasons. So it's as though, you know, we have a, a merger. God selects it for his reasons, which annihilate man, because man has to surrender himself to God. But at the same time, he says, at the same time, I also affirm what you did. Okay? So he annihilates it and affirms it at the same time. How exactly that fits together is the enigma to be pondered. But I think that's the message that the Torah has here in these two narratives. Okay, now let's take a brief look at the echoes of these two narratives in the book of Shmuel. The book of Shmuel, of course, the one who is going to carry these things out in practice is King David. Not Shlomo. Shlomo is the one who will actually build the Mikdash. But the one who will select Yerushalayim as the place where the temple will be erected is 
his father, King David. Now, um, uh, Shmuel Bet, chapters 5 through 7, okay, are, are the chapters on which we're going to focus. We're going to focus mostly on chapter 7. In chapters 5 and 6, uh, first, David is anointed king of all of Israel. Okay, he had been the king of Judea, king of Yehuda, and then uh, when the leadership of Binyamin, uh, who had been ruling over the other tribes, uh, uh, comes and says, we want to recognize you as king over all of Israel, the first thing David does, if we can follow the chronology, now, here again, I'm making short shrift of big questions, is the order of the prakim in Shmuel Bet, also the chronological order. For our purposes, we'll treat it as though it, it is, because even if it's not the chronological order, it's the narrative order, and that's what really is important to us. The Tanakh wants us to understand the logic, and not necessarily the historical chronology. Okay, but be that as it may, the first thing the Torah, the Tanakh describes him as doing when he becomes king is conquering Yavus. And Yavus is the last outpost of the ancient Canaanites, in this case, the Yavusim. Okay? The ancient residents of Canaan, okay, who had been mostly conquered, dispossessed, starting with the time of Yoshua, going on through at least part of the period of the Shoftim. Okay, but Yavus is a holdout. We see it, for example, in the very disturbing story of the concubine in Giv'ah, right? Uh, that's where they say, let's not stay in Yavus because they're Goyim. Let's stay with our own brethren. Okay, we'll get better treatment there. And, of course, they get the exact opposite. They get very Sodom-like treatment, in fact. Okay, so, but Yavus is still in non-Jewish hands. And it remains that way until David assumes the kingship of Israel. And then he conquers Yavus and moves his capital city to Yerushalayim. That's described in chapter 5. Why does he choose Yerushalayim? Okay, the reasons are pretty well known. It's the center of the country uh, geographically. It's also the border between Judea and Binyamin, which have been the two rivaling uh, the, the, the two uh, rivaling uh, uh, tribes, okay, and so this is a way of uniting the tribes, okay, uniting the people. So Yerushalayim is a symbol of unity, of shalem, okay, of bringing things together, very reminiscent of Malkitzedek, Melech Shalem, very reminiscent of the fact that when Avram in chapter 14 of Breshit uh, has his colloquy with the king of Shalem, he is completing peacefully his conquest of, of the land. Here, Avra, here, David, his descendant, is not so peacefully completing the conquest. Okay, so here again, he completes the conquest, thereby uniting the land, uniting the people. Okay, very important political and human moral values. In chapter 6, what he does is decides to move the Aron, the Aron which has been wandering ever since Shiloh was destroyed in the beginning of the book of Shmuel. Okay, it's been wandering, it's never been brought to its permanent resting place. And so David decides its permanent resting place is going to be right here in Yerushalayim. 
thereby upgrading the political capital into a spiritual capital as well. And this is the backdrop for chapter 7, which we'll look at a bit more closely. Okay, when the king was sitting in his house after he had established his throne and God gave him peace from all of his enemies. Now this resonates with Sukim we've alluded to earlier in Zvarim chapter 12. Okay, there it says, uh, at the point where that's the point where where we should seek out the place for God to dwell, seek out a place to build the temple. Right? When does that happen? When we've achieved peace. So David says, bingo. Okay, I fulfilled that pasuk in Dvarim chapter 12. It's time to build a temple, which of course will be another way of upgrading the status of Yerushalayim. Okay, so he gives a human, a very profound, humanly understandable reason for why he wants to build a temple. He says, look here, I, the earthly king, am dwelling in a house of cedar, okay, and God is dwelling in a tent. Okay, that, that's not, you know, that's not right. If I'm dwelling in a house of cedar, I should build a cedar house, an even more glorious cedar house, for the honor of God. And Natan says to him, right on. Okay, you, you, I, I agree with you entirely. What you said makes perfect sense and you should go for it. Uh, very curious because, of course, that night, God comes to Natan and says, uh-uh, nothing doing. Okay, now, what's the point of this opening? The point of the opening is, and this is again reminiscent of Breshit chapter 14, David HaMelech is using his own human logic to take an initiative and say, here is the place where I think the Mikdash ought to be built. It's my initiative, it makes sense. And the Navi agrees with him. David's thinking seems to be, you know, pretty sound. Okay? And yet God overrules it. Okay, God's overruling it could indicate God saying, well, human initiative is all to the good, but it has to be selected by me, ultimately. That could be the point, but as well, as, as the chapter develops, okay, we see that the message is actually a little more complicated. Okay, first of all, God says, Ha'ata tivneli baitli shifti. Okay, notice the word ha'ata. Shall you build a house for me to dwell? Okay, now that sounds like, uh, you know, a reprimand. Okay, it's a rhetorical question. It sounds like, Sounds like a reprimand. Interestingly, the Midrash notes that in the parallel text in Divrei Ayamim, chapter 21, Divrei Ayamim 1, uh, chapter 21, it says, Lo atativneli shifti. Not you shall be the one to build it, where it's spelled out. So the Midrash says, Ha'ata can be read as a positive. It's rare, but there are rhetorical questions in the Tanakh whose answer is, yes. Shall you be the one to build it? The answer could be, yes, I should. 
Okay? And God is maybe leaving the door open. Now, of course, later on he says, you won't be the one to do it. So what would be the point of leaving that point ambiguous at the beginning? I think part of the point is God is not entirely rejecting the Davidic initiative. And in fact, as the story goes on, it says, then goes on to say, you know, for generations I've been wandering around in a tent. Did I ever tell any leader I, wa- I needed a house? I don't need a house. I'm perfectly happy as a Bedouin. I can move around in a tent. No problem for me. I don't need a house. Never said I needed it. Sounds like a, you know, the whole idea of a temple seems to be wrong-headed. But of course, as the chapter continues, okay, or one further point, God also says in in pasuk uh, in pasuk yud aleph, umen ayom ashetziviti shoftim on Yisrael vanachoti lecha mikolai vecha. I'm going to make for you a house. Okay, and God says, I don't need you to make me a house. I, I make you a house. And by this house, he of course means a house of kingship. Okay, a dynasty. Okay, so it sounds like God is saying, I don't need a house. But as he continues, he then says, your son will build the house. It's an interesting shift. He says, not lishivti, but lishmi. I don't need to dwell in a house. He's not changing the theology. I don't need a house to dwell in. But I do need a house in my honor, in my name. Uh, okay? As it says in Dvarim Yudbet many times. Okay? I need a house to my name. And your son will build it. Why? Because after I build you a house, that's when you... Namely, your son will build me. How, how does God build him a house? By having a son, by having a dynasty. That gives the stability necessary for a temple. God is saying to David, the peace you are enjoying now is not full. Interestingly, in Dvarim Yudbet, it says, Vishav Betach, you dwell in tranquility. And it doesn't say that at the beginning of our chapter here. It just says, Okay, so God says to him, you aren't yet a dynasty. Your house is not established well enough for you to build me the house. So God is both accepting and rejecting at the same time. Saying, it's a good initiative, I like it. My prophet wasn't completely off base when he approved it. At the same time, at the same time, you're missing a point. Okay, you need something else. Your son will do it in your name as your continuation, not you yourself. Again, this echoes Breshit 14 as human initiative. And the final mention, the final narrative, which we can deal with only all too briefly, Shmuel Bet Kafdalid. The parallel in the very Amim Aleph Kaf Aleph. And here, uh, here, we have the story where David conducts a census, which the Torah says is always a dangerous thing. Yoab tries to oppose it. He knows it's dangerous. And the result is that David repents, but apparently too late. God says, okay, choose your punishment. Offers him three punishments, okay, either, either a drought, okay, 
a drought or military defeat or a plague. Okay, in descending order of time frames. And David responds with the famous line, Nipla na viyad Hashem ki rabimach rachamav va'al epol uviyad adam al epola. Let me fall in, by the hand of God because God's mercy is great. And let me not fall by the hand of men. Which is another way of saying I'm not interested in military defeat because that's the hand of man. They don't have any mercy. But dever, that's completely in the hand of God and I believe that God will ultimately relent. Now, of course, the story is God relents, but only after 70,000 people die. This is, again, a hugely disturbing story. It also opens in a disturbing way. It says, God remains angry with Israel. For what? We don't know. And he incites David to enumerate the people. Incites David to enumerate the people. So, what kind of a sin is this? Did David really sin? And if God is angry, why does David have to sin in order for God to carry out the punishment? And as I mentioned already, David, David repents. In Pasuk Yud, it says, David's heart smote him. He repented and he said, what I did was stupid. What I did was a sin. Please forgive me. And God says, okay, choose one of three punishments. Why? David repented already. It was David's sin. He repented. Why isn't it good enough? Did David choose wisely when he chose the plague? 70,000 people died. And then, God relents from the plague later on, and then David repents again. And he says, If, if, uh, if uh, in Pasuk uh, Yud, I sinned, I should suffer, I and my family. Why the people as a whole? Why are they all suffering? Very puzzling story, very disturbing. Obviously, we don't have time to solve these questions. Even in my planning of this year, I didn't imagine we could solve even a fraction of them. But let's just note one thing for our purposes. This is a very unsettling story, very much like the Akedah. And how does it conclude? The angel with an outstretched hand about to smite the people of Yerushalayim and God says, Stay your hand. What does that sound like? Sounds like the angel staying Avram's hand. When David says, Ve'ela hatzon me'asu, these sheep, what did they do? Who is the sacrificial sheep? And ultimately, the place where the angel stays his hand is the place where David is commanded to go and build an altar, purchase the threshing floor of Aravna and build an altar there, and that ends the plague. We can clearly hear many, many echoes here of the Akedah. And we clearly have a sense here, this is God saying to David, I'm going to be the one to select this place. And in very unsettling and enigmatic ways. We don't really understand the ways of God in this chapter. And I think whatever answers we give to all the questions I raised, we're going to end up with better questions than we have answers. And that's part of the point of the text. Part of the point is, we aren't supposed to fully understand the divine ways or the divine will. 
And that's how the place of the temple will be selected. So who selects the temple, God or man? And the standard Jewish answer to questions of this sort is yes. Both and, and God, thank you.